It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Xander. We have a great guest for you today. Unfortunately, we ran into some technical difficulties in the course of recording the show. So this is going to be part one of two. Jake has been kind enough to offer to loop back with us at a later date, and we'll finish up our discussion there and get it back out to you shortly. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we've got a particularly exciting episode. I know I always say that, but I'm always so excited about them because we've got something new and cool that we've not done before. And actually, this one is one we've done before, kind of. So let me just get to it. We've brought back our great economist, in his own words, Nobel Prize losing economist, Jake Meyer, who was an economist and lecturer at Cal State Long Beach and is now moving on to bigger, better things. It's secret for now, but if you go to his LinkedIn in a few weeks or months, I'm sure it'll be updated. We've got the inside scoop. Too bad for you. You'll get to find out later. But needed to get back in touch with Jake pretty quickly because a lot of stuff has changed in fundamental ways about a lot of important policy, particularly in the United States over the past year. And with all sort of the scandal-driven political atmosphere and media, a lot of it gets you know buried. And arguably, the major policy changes that we're seeing in the US and other parts of the world have far more impact on your life than all of these scandals. So it's stuff that we want you to know about, be able to know about and think about. And last time we had Jake on the show, it was so much fun and so informative that we just had to do it again. And one of the things we love in particular about Jake is that, you know, he's he's been an academic for a long time and he shares sort of our own passion, which is saying, look, a lot of what's going on in politics, a lot of the important stuff gets discussed in DC, inside the Beltway, and in academic circles in very technically wonky ways, but not in a way that's accessible to most people. And it doesn't, you know, you could be educated, you could be smart, but unless you're sort of in these circles, you don't have access to it. And gosh, I forget who said it, Madison or Hamilton or someone, you know, believe that an educated populace is is like the bedrock of a great democracy. So that's part of what we do. Jake shares that philosophy with us big time. So it's so great that he agreed to join us once again so, everyone, we are going to be talking about some of those major policy changes, and I would like to heartily welcome back 
Jake Meyer to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's great to be back. So we've got this big list of questions for Jake, and I want to dive into one that that I've been scratching my head about for a while. And Jake, I don't know if you if you've got a good eye on this, but something we've talked about recently in our our episode about Turkey is that the real is is plummeting. You know, at some point we were, we lira. talked in Russia about how the what was it lira Turkish lira the lira sorry not the real thank Iranian you the lira is dropping the Russian rubles dropping and then there's you know there's a number of crises going on in emerging market other emerging market countries that our listeners probably haven't heard about Indonesia. Argentina, India, Pakistan. I, you know, I, I've only been around for 31 years, but this seems like it's all sort of happening at once. And is there any sort of common thread into what's going on here? Oh, certainly. Yes. So, so a big, a big part of what's happening right now is a great illustration of these global business cycles and these sort of global financial cycles. So looking at it in a, in a very simple sense, the big reason that that all these countries are having these sorts of crises at the moment is because the U.S. has finally started to raise interest rates. Now, generally speaking, whenever a core country, especially especially a country that's at the very core of the financial system, like the U.S., starts raising interest rates, what that does is it makes investing in the U.S. relatively attractive, which means people that were previously making, let's say, 12% in Turkey, seeing that the U.S. interest rate goes from let's say 1% to 2%, they start bringing their money back from Turkey to the U.S. Now, when they're bringing their money back from Turkey to the U.S., what's happening is they're having to sell the currency in the country that they're bringing the money from, and they're using it to buy the currency of the country that they are bringing the money to. So what's happening here is as the U.S. is raising interest rates, all of this money that was previously flooding into emerging markets because the U.S. had essentially an interest rate of zero, along with most of the other countries in the core of the global financial system, like in the Eurozone, in the UK, they had these very low interest rates. As the interest rates in these poor countries are rising up, all that money that was previously flooding into emerging markets is now coming back to these core countries. So everyone who previously invested in these emerging markets is selling the currency of these emerging markets to bring it back to the core countries, which is putting substantial downward pressure on, on those currencies. And then, of course, you can you know, have this sort of situation start, and then it can snowball into these sort of speculative attacks and international bank run type events where people see the currency weakening a little. They see what else is happening in the world. They see that that's putting uh, you know, other parts of their economy and banking system under stress. And then they immediately start engaging in these speculative attacks where they sell off the currency all at once in order to try to essentially bet that the currency is going to fall more. And then that snowballs into these massive depreciations and massive devaluations that we're seeing in places like Turkey and Argentina. And of course, like India, Pakistan, Indonesia, There's, it's, it's happening in, in a broad swath of emerging markets at the moment. So the first question I want to ask you about this sort of emerging currency crisis or pre-crisis, whatever you want to call it, is if the central cause, if the, if the common cause that kind of ties all of these countries depreciating currencies together is the U.S., the core entity sort of at the center of the global financial system, beginning to raise interest rates and increasing demand for foreign capital, foreign capital flows from the U.S., and it flows out of all of these other countries, then why don't we see something similar depreciating currency among emerging markets 
at the end of every business cycle when the U.S. gets around to raising interest rates? So there's, there's two aspects of this. One is that to a lesser extent, we kind of do. Um, it's just that it's just that in this one specifically, what's been happening is interest rates in the U.S. and other core countries have been so low for so long that what happened is is uh, you had these very long running inflows, and then as the money comes into these countries, it makes their currency essentially stronger than it should be. It makes it too strong, which means that it has farther to fall. So because interest rates went so low, because the financial crisis in two thousand eight was such a large crisis. It pushed a lot more money than would have been pushed in these emerging markets otherwise, which means they had farther to fall. And then the way that these crises tend to work is that there can be interest rate increases in core countries without it causing a set of emerging market crises, of course, right? These are really sort of threshold events. It's the interest rate increases causing stress. And if it causes enough stress, everyone panics and sells the currency. And then we have a crisis, right? So, so, so essentially what we're seeing here is that this is a bigger version of what we see essentially every time core countries start raising interest rates. So this is actually something that happens that happens fairly frequently when these core countries, in particular the U.S., start raising interest rates. Is it generally always starts putting pressure on on emerging markets, right, or emerging markets and developing economies? So this one is so this one is 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 not fundamentally different than. Then other times the U.S. has you know started raising rates, but it's just much bigger, and it's caused and it's caused more of these sort of more of this pressure to turn into crises because it's been so much bigger because interest rates were so low for so long, which caused more money than usual to flow into emerging markets, which made their currencies get you know very strong relative to where they should be, which means they had very far to fall which means that they became very vulnerable vulnerable to hitting this threshold where you get these sell-offs that everyone panics, sells the currency, and then it turns into a full-on crisis. Gotcha. So then as sort of a follow-up to that, we've identified sort of this one common cause that ties the currency depreciation across the world together in a certain way, but clearly these countries also have unique circumstances, right? And while I'm maybe not as familiar with all of them, except maybe Turkey, because I spent a lot of time studying Turkey. You know, what, how do we go about identifying sort of what puts pressure on these countries differently? And for example, with Turkey, you know, they have an external debt to GDP of something like 55%. Maybe it's more now, and that's public and private sector. And the reason that that sort of exposes the currency for, for the sake of our listeners is when you borrow in foreign currency, if your domestic currency depreciates, then paying back that foreign debt or that debt denominated in foreign currency becomes more expensive because your own currency is weaker. Now, Pakistan, and I think this is a comparable metric, their their external debt to GDP is something only like 30%. And yet they have been needed, needing to seek these bridge loans from China to kind of tie them over because their foreign exchange reserves are falling in an attempt to keep the Pakistan rupee relatively strong. There's been talk about an IMF loan, which the US was at first against, but now they kind of seem okay about. And they just, it looks like they're inking a $10 billion deal with Saudi Arabia. So they're having a balance of payment situation, basically, with foreign exchange reserves down and currency weakening. So like what, but their external debt is low. low. So how do these countries find themselves in situations where their currency is particularly vulnerable? So this is this is a really interesting direction to uh, to go in because there's just so many things that matter here. But but one of the one of the really interesting ways that I'd kind of start by answering this question is that even though currency crises and these currency crashes overall are 
Very similar in terms of what we observe on the surface. The currency takes a nosedive and becomes worth way, way less. There's, there's, very, there's very, very different sets of processes and vulnerabilities that can lead to that type of crisis. So, so for example, a, a crisis like, like what we saw in Southeast Asia in 1997, even though it culminated in the same currency you know, crash event as we're seeing sort of happen now in places like Pakistan and Turkey, it was deeply fundamentally different because there's all different types of combinations of vulnerabilities, but they follow a few distinct patterns. So, so you have you have one basic pattern of currency crises where that are very very based on economic factors and economic fundamentals, oftentimes budget deficits. So, if a country is running very large budget deficits with a fixed exchange rate, what tends to happen is that uh, those large budget deficits create inflation, which makes it so that domestic goods are very expensive and foreign goods are very cheap. So now everyone buys foreign goods instead, which puts pressure on their currency to weaken. But if they have a fixed exchange rate, it can't. So they eventually just run down reserves until there's a speculative attack. And that's very fundamentally different than what we are sort of seeing with Turkey, which is a little closer to what we saw with the um, crises in Southeast Asia in the late 90s, which is where you have countries that have borrowed quite a bit denominated in foreign currency. And then what happens is whenever some sort of global shock hits, whether it's this rise in U.S. interest rates, whether it's some hint of domestic financial instability, anything that makes it so markets get nervous about there being the potential for the currency to weaken, then you see the speculative attacks. And that's when the currency crash happens. And the reason for that is this very interesting sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where, where what happens is because of this currency mismatch, that's what we call the borrowing and foreign currency that you were discussing. Because of this currency mismatch, everyone knows, everyone who's looking at this country from the outside or people who are looking at this event from inside the country know that if the currency does start to weaken at all, everyone who's borrowed money is going to really struggle to service their debt and repay their loans, which means you're going to start seeing loans default or people default on loans, which means you're going to start seeing stress in the financial system, which means that you're going to start seeing you know, financial crises or a financial crisis in the country potentially, which makes everyone very, very nervous. And what do people do when they get nervous? They want to get their money. They want to get out of Dodge, right? They, so they take their money, they pull it out of the country. Well, that act of taking their money and pulling it out of the country creates this big event where everyone's selling the currency, which actually creates the depreciation, which creates the people defaulting on these loans, which creates this very crisis event that everyone was nervous about in the first place. So what you can have here are situations that look very similar to Turkey, which is a little which which looks a little more like this sort of foreign currency denominated debt, kind of financial system oriented type of event. Or you can have places that look more like that look more like that are a little closer to to like what we're to like what we have seen in like Argentina and such, where you basically for some reason it's not always budget deficits. There can be plenty of other reasons for this, but for some reason people are spending a lot more money in the country than they're producing of goods and services, which means that they are basically filling in the gap by buying more stuff from abroad than they are selling to foreign countries, which means they're running these current account deficits, and then what this does is that 
because in order to run this current account deficit, the countries have to sell their foreign exchange reserves. What this does is it creates a vulnerability whenever some sort of global shock happens that makes people uh, lose confidence in the currency and think that it's going to eventually fall. What they do, knowing that this country is vulnerable because of the current account deficit, because they're running down reserves, then everyone goes and sells the currency to get their, to get rid of it before it becomes worth nothing. And then that creates, again, this crash because everyone's selling the currency and such. So, so these crises can happen from, and these are just two of sort of a broad set of different, of different ways which these currency crashes can, can manifest. But there's all, type, there's all different types of underlying vulnerabilities that can culminate in these big currency crisis events. They more often than not involve some sort of global trigger whether it's a global trigger uh, related to risk, like the U.S. housing market crashing, or a global trigger related to interest rates, like the U.S. raising rates over the past oh, six months and such, some combination of that trigger and then some inherent domestic vulnerability, whether it's, say, more credit-oriented or whether it's large budget deficits or whether it's large current accounts, you know, trade deficits and such. Now, I have a couple questions. I think you mentioned that in 2008, part of what drove the depth of the U.S. recession was that when the U.S. stock market and economy started to tank, there was a, a capital outflow as well, right? A lot of capital fled the United States. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things that the U.S. tends to be, yeah, I mean, it, it happened to a certain degree, but a, a lot of what was happening in the U.S. was was more sh- shifts among different risk profiles moving from less to more liquid. Okay. And then of course all those more all those less liquid assets became worth a lot less, which weakened up people's balance sheets and stuff. In core countries it tends to operate very differently because in core countries in core countries when risks when it gets riskier, people tend to come to the country because right. even if that's the genesis of of the weakness, it's still safer than Pakistan and such. Right. So there's nowhere safer for the United for an investor to move their money to when the United States collapses. Right. Yeah. If the US, right, the US goes, everything goes. So right. okay. yeah. So even when the US is sort of the cause of that vulnerability, you can often you can often see people flocking to the safety of US, you know, almost paradoxically, until you think about it a little more, almost yes. flocking to the safety of US assets there. Yes. Well, and it's the and in particular, it's like the government assets or the and the harder assets. Yeah, the treasuries. Yeah, exactly. Rather than the stock market, for example. So what's happening when the U.S. goes through recession is a movement of capital from, let's say, real estate in 2008 and the stock market to things like treasuries, bonds in particular, because that allows the United States to actually drive the interest rate down because demand has spiked so much for these things who can drive the interest rate down to, you know, and take on, take on all these bonds or, or, you know, issue all these bonds to, and then the United States can then use the money that's come in through these bonds to drive a stimulus program, but also because the interest rate has dropped, it's able to, and, and that stimulus program is let's see fiscal policy. And then yes. it's also able to drive by driving down the interest rate. It's able to use monetary policy to add credit to the system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yes. Okay, so the U.S. has all these tools that these other countries don't, or at least they, they have them in much bigger, more powerful ways to be able to deal with these crises, Whereas I expect Turkey is sitting there going, uh, crap. Yeah, yeah. So these countries, so these emerging markets and developing economies are, are often caught in, in much more of a tough situation when these types of events occur. Because in the U.S., they, something like 2008 hits, it's very easy to you know, essentially take those steps as you just outlined. Monetary policy, lower interest rates, you know, people are flocking to safe uh, to sort of safe assets. So there isn't too much pressure on the dollar. There isn't uh, there isn't, you know, these big capital outflows and things like that. However, in, in emerging markets, places like Pakistan and Turkey, what what you tend to see or what you what you actually see here is that these countries, as people lose faith in them and people try to pull their money out, they're constrained from engaging in, the, in those two things. They're, they're not able to engage in the monetary stimulus, basically print off a bunch of money. Uh, well, okay, yeah, for, all, for our purposes here, print off a bunch of money and then push it out into the financial system to lower interest rates. They can't do that because what that would do now is lower interest rates at the same time that risk is rising. So your nominal return of investing in the country has fallen and your risk-adjusted return of investing in the country is also bringing that even farther down. So mm. these countries are under stress, these emerging markets, if they're under stress and they try to engage in monetary stimulus, all they do is just speed up the capital outflows, which, which makes their exchange rate fall faster, which makes their country look even worse, which makes it look riskier, which speeds up the outflows and just puts them in an even tougher you know, situation. Also, on the fiscal policy side for these countries, what's happening is that, is that as these countries are having their exchange rate weaken and such... Typically, because they're borrowing in foreign currency, they're borrowing in dollars more often than not. Now, all the money the government owes is larger in terms of their domestic currency. So, in terms of how much how, of how much they have to levy in taxes to pay it, that number just went up. So, their fiscal position looks worse, and because the country's riskier, the interest they're paying just went up because they have to you know because now investors want a higher return for investing in the riskier country. So now at the same time that they want to engage in the fiscal stimulus, their debt just went up and their interest payments just went up. And to even just pile it on, because I know it's bad enough already, but let's just pile it on. Um, If they engage in the fiscal stimulus, what that will do is increase domestic demand and it's not going to have much of an effect on domestic production. So you increase domestic demand, how much you're spending relative to how much you're producing what that's going to do is weaken your current account even farther. So these countries are already having their currency crash, and that's typically because their current account was weak beforehand. Now, if they engage in fiscal stimulus, they're going to expedite these outflows 
through the current accounts and through the trade balance. So they're already having capital fleeing the country through the capital account or the financial account. They, and if they try to, uh, to engage in a fiscal stimulus to prevent a recession and such, now they're going to also speed up outflows through the current account. And, and, and those two things are fundamentally incompatible because your current account balance essentially is just the negative of your capital account balance or your, or your financial account balance. So the only way that's reconciled is by increasing the rate of depreciation, which puts even farther pressure on their currency to weaken. So for these countries like, like Pakistan, Turkey, Argentina, that are emerging markets that aren't in that great position that the U.S. is in where we can essentially be the cause of a crisis and still have people want to bring money into our country, they just get caught between a rock, a hard place, another hard place, and another rock. Wow, man, that's kind of, that's a raw effing deal. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that's why these countries often, when they have these sorts of currency crises, and unless they're able to get some pretty solid and effective IMF intervention or something comp or, you know, something similar to that, they, they end up having these just devastating crises. So for the United States, we have, you know, I'm not even going to ask you, have we kept interest rates historically low for an historically long period of time? Yes, we have. Yeah, that's so, <laughs> so, Someone's going to fight you on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like not really doing that. That's just a fact. But so what the F is going on with that? Because even the Keynesians revealing my bias here. But, you know, typically my understanding is the idea is when times are good, you're booming. You know, we've had, what, 15 record breaking stock market moments. We've got very low unemployment. Like you should have a higher interest rate and, you know, so that you can dip the interest rate later when things go poorly, when the business cycle changes. But, you know, that's the common wisdom. I think very briefly, maybe for some of our listeners, why would you ever increase the interest rate? Like, you know, isn't capital availability good? And then also, why the F has it taken so long? And like, what are the potential consequences of that? So as to the first answer, the, the reason that you would ever raise the interest rate, the sort of textbook econ 101 answer is that if the economy starts what we call overheating, unemployment gets too low and such, it creates inflationary pressure. You know, so right, so rising prices, which causes a lot of long-term costs to the economy for you know through 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 a variety of mechanisms, having high inflation just ends up being very costly in the long run. So what tends to happen is once unemployment starts getting low and infl- inflation starts rising, you start raising interest rates to kind of rein in things and prevent that inflation. In a in a modern economy and a more modern treatment of or a more modern sort of understanding of how the economic system works. The bigger issue is financial stability. When you have these very, very low interest rates, it tends to it tends to make people borrow money for borrow money for investments that that are not necessarily viable in the long run. You kind of get this irrational exuberance where everyone can borrow money easily, which bids up asset prices, which makes everyone even more confident, which bids up asset prices, which makes everyone even more confident, which bids up asset prices again, and just feeds into itself. And then at some point you get crazy enough, you start investing in tech startups and then you're in real trouble. Uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, that would have been my first one. I was, <laughs> but yeah, yeah okay. it, just, it just, it just spirals out of control or it can very easily spiral out of control if you, if you let, if you let things go unchecked. Right. Cause what's happening is with a, with a interest rate, what you're actually doing is fixing the price and printing as much money as people demand at that price, which means you've, you know, at, at, and that's how fiat currency works. You've got essentially a limitless supply 
at a certain price of money. And so if the interest rate is really low and it's driving, that's starting to drive the stock market up, but you go like, oh man, my, or, you know, drive a market up, any market, you start going like, oh, well, I can borrow at 2% and I can get a 10% return. Hmm. So then everyone starts doing that because any one person doing it is perfectly rational to do that because why wouldn't you? But then once everyone does it, you're just, the market is going up just because people are throwing money at it, not because the fundamentals are there. And then you get a bubble that's going to pop. Yeah, it, it becomes unstable. And then, and then the bigger that bubble is, the bigger the bust is later. Yeah. So why the F has it taken us so long to raise our interest rates? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> it's, if you're going to pose that question, it should be, it should be aimed at the people who, who, who are at the Fed. So my perspective on this or my understanding of this is that, is that the Fed is primarily targeting the unemployment inflation kind of nexus. And, and while they're, of course, paying a lot of attention to financial stability, uh, a lot of what a lot of what it looks like the Fed has been doing in the past eight years in terms of trying to maintain financial stability has been by creating and looking at different sorts of tools than monetary policy. Things like looking at what's called contingent uh, contingent convertible bonds, where if a bank where they, a bank sell this bond and if the bank comes comes under a certain amount of stress, it gets wiped off their books and turned into equity. Or looking at these different sorts of factors related to capital adequacy. So, so the Fed, it looks like, it looks like, and again, at this point, I'm just giving my opinion of what the Fed has been doing. It looks like a lot of what the Fed has been doing is continuing to use monetary policy to primarily handle the unemployment inflation nexus and is looking at financial stability through different sorts of tools. And personally, I think that's insufficient, but that's veering off into, it, it, that's veering off into purely my opinion. So we've we've kind of now traced a link between some of the emerging market currency issues and how that has to do with the U.S., how it has to do with external borrowing, and the implications of what will probably be a continuation of U.S. monetary policy to increase rates. I want to turn now to a, a slightly, slightly less developing country, I guess is one way to put it. China, it's still a developing country, it's still kind of an emerging market in ways, but not in other ways. And clearly the thing that's going to be on a lot of people's minds, and we've done an episode on this, but now it's time to get a new perspective on it, is the trade war. Wow. And it's easy to think that we are at the end of a cycle right now in the U.S. Oh, I certainly I certainly think so. Yeah. I, I mean, it's been nine years and most growth periods last between like eight and 10 years, right? If you go back 70 years. So we're there just statistically. And as the Federal Reserve raises rates, and even as more money flows into the U.S., the question is, how is the trade war going to affect what might have just been a run-of-the-mill recession? I'm not saying it will be, but how does the being at the end of the business cycle play into what's going on right now with U.S. trade policy? That's a great question. Now, so trade is, trade is this whole own animal, and it, it definitely plays into all these factors. Like, I mean, so, so for example, when we were talking about current accounts earlier, for most countries, the current account is mostly just the trade balance, right? And so, so this is all, everything we've talked about is heavily related to trade. But the thing is, when you start to see these sorts of, you know, tariff increases, and you start to see things like this, that can have an effect on the business cycle, but it often doesn't do as much with the financial cycle. And when we think about, when we think about things that creates like the banking crisis we saw in 2008, 
the currency crisis that we're seeing right now in emerging markets. That's very much related to these sorts of movements in credit, these sort of long-running credit cycles, these long-running assets, these cycles and asset values that are very sort of financial in nature. Whereas tariffs and such, they they very rarely spark crises. It's more like they're recessionary, but they're much less likely to sort of kick off a crisis. So if you're looking at what's happening with the trade war, the economy is weaker than it would have been without it. I have zero doubt on that. But it, but the, the probability that, that it's a trigger for another crisis, I think, is going to be relatively low. Now, if that compounds with things like now, if that compounds with things like the the tightening of monetary policy, then, yeah, I mean, I think it could play in. Right. Because and, and this is just, you know, one example off the top of my head, the increase in tariffs is going to cause prices in the U.S. to go up. I mean, that's like the point of a tariff is to make things cost more. If that makes prices go up, that causes inflation to rise, which maybe makes the Fed hike quicker, which magnifies the pressure on emerging markets, as well as increasing the those increasing interest rates or that quicker pace of increasing interest rates, putting more pressure on U.S. banks and such. So I could see any effect that tariffs may have in the timing of you know sort of the next downturn. If they're, if they're going to have an effect, which I wouldn't say with confidence, I, I think it would be through speeding up the pace of U.S. interest rate increases, um, much more so than kind of sparking it themselves. I mean, I think it's very possible they could magnify they could magnify a recession or they could make growth lower than it would have been otherwise. I'm, I'm almost positive in that. But I think it's very, very unlikely that there'll be a trigger. I think the other thing that we have to ask is that early this year, there was a really big tax cut, but as but also just you know tax structure change that was that was passed, and I, I think we can speculate all day about whether it was a good idea per se, or you know to what extent it's going to have an impact on the economy as a whole. But I I think the you know it comes at a time when the united states has had a a slow but very long upward you know upward business cycle it comes at a time when you know i think a number of economists were starting to predict that a downward cycle was on its way then all of a sudden this tax cut shows up and you know the market seemed to react positively the, the like stock market seemed to react positively to that which a lot of people seem to think is a proxy for economic health which obviously I have my own questions about that. But is the timing of this tax cut going to be significant in the United States and global business cycle? And is there any kind of obvious consensus on what kind of impact it could have short term versus long term? Oh, absolutely. So the the best way to think about fiscal policy over the business cycle, well, first off, how it should work. And then I'm going to go into how it occurs. And then you're going to see when I talk about how it occurs that what's happening now is just a perfect example of how things are done wrong. So whether or not you engage in a sort of Keynesian counter-cyclical stimulus, that basic idea that when the economy is bad, the government should spend more. And when the economy is good, the government should spend less. Right now, that's the basic Keynesian counter-cyclical spending idea. And, and it's founded upon the idea that, that has a lot of empirical support that government spending in a bust or a bad time is very, very has a very large effect in, sim- in simulating the economy. Because you're in a recession, there's resources that aren't being mobilized and such. So the government spending $1 that wasn't going to get spent goes very far. In a boom, whenever the government borrows a dollar to spend, 
it's borrowing a dollar that would have been spent otherwise because you're in a boom. Everyone's spending money. Unemployment's low. So the stimulative effect of spending at the peak of the business cycle is very, very small. So using that logic, the fact that it's very, very cost effective to borrow and spend at the, de- at the downturn of the business cycle, and it's very, very cost ineffective to borrow and spend at the peak of the business cycle, what you would want to do here is spend more money when it's going to be effective which is when you're in a recession and then spend less when it's going to be ineffective, which is in the boom. Right. And that's something, and that's not something that's, that's not something that's too controversial. It's, it's measurable that, uh, that the, that what we call the fiscal multiplier shifts quite a bit across the business cycle, that it's relatively high in the bust and relatively low in the boom. And, but the thing is, even if we toss all that to the side, and we ignore this idea of countercyclical spending, you're still going to have the budget deficit shift across the business cycle. Because where do, where do taxes come from, right? You're taxing income. You're taxing, well, mo- for, for the most part, you're taxing income, whether it's corporate or personal. So what happens here is when you have a recession and the economy slows down, there's less income to tax. So even, if, so even if you keep spending exactly the same, when you get into a recession, the deficit is always going to increase because tax revenues fall. And then when you get into a boom, you're always going to take in more in tax revenues because now there's more income to tax. So even if you keep tax rates exactly the same, you're, you're going to see big deficits in a recession and small deficits in a boom. And, that is, and that's one of those things that, that's going to happen regardless whether you engage in the Keynesian, you know, countercyclical spending, if you do, that pattern is going to be even more pronounced because now you're not just seeing revenues fall in the boom. You're also seeing spending rise. You're not just seeing revenues fall in the bust. You're seeing spending go up and you're not just seeing revenues rise in the boom. You're seeing spending go down. Right. So so it's it's just magnified if you engage in the kind of cyclical spending. So that's the basic idea of how fiscal policy should and kind of does work across the business cycle in certain cases. However, what we tend to see more often is that when the bust hits, everyone engages in this big stimulus spending to try to get their economy going again because they know that the fiscal multiplier is high. So it's dollar spent now is going to go relatively far. However, once you get farther into the boom, and this is what we're seeing at this exact moment right now, tax revenues are up. The economy looks great. No one's thinking about the next bust. So what they're saying is, hey, the economy looks great. We have a lot of tax revenues. Let's spend more. Let's cut taxes. And then what that does is it increases deficits at the peak of the business cycle too. And then now, instead of cutting deficits when the economy is good, the deficit stays the same or gets even larger. So when the next downturn comes, you already have a massive deficit and there's no room left to, to you know, spend even more to try to get yourself out of the recession. So what you, so what you tend to see, and this is and what we're seeing today with this current tax cut and the fact that the U.S. deficit has gone from, I don't know, maybe half a trillion to almost a trillion in two years. We're seeing right now at the peak of the business cycle. We're raising deficits and essentially goosing the economy with stimulus spending at the exact wrong time. And, and that can, and that, in addition to being very ineffective, because each dollar is not going very far in terms of stimulus spending at the peak of the business cycle, it's also making it so that when the next downturn comes, we're already going to have trillion dollar deficits, and tax revenues are going to go down, and there's going to be pressure for stimulus spending to get us out of the recession. So something like two trillion dollar, two and a half trillion dollar deficits, if we have a recession in the next year or two, is not out of the question. 
But if we draw a linear line from where we are now, it'll pay for itself. It'll be great. Well, the U.S. debt to GDP is is 104% right now. So, <laughs> oh boy, yeah. So, so it's it hasn't worked out great in the past 60 years. It's almost as if political considerations are are trumping long term economic ones. Oh, first time for everything, right? Yeah, I know. Who who who'd have ever thunk it? Yeah. So, Given that that happens and that that is the case and that politicians have a tendency to do things that appease their constituency, even if it isn't in the best long-term interest of their country's economy, how do we get out of this? I mean, if we're just going to see the, I think the CBO's estimate was like an additional 1.4 or 5 trillion added to the budget, but of course the next 10 years as a result of this tax plan and we're probably facing another recession at some point in the not too distant future. And at that point, politicians will probably be encouraged to undertake deficit spending in order to engage in this countercyclical fiscal stimulus that you're talking about. How, how do we ever get out of this? Is, is this a new normal? Are we, or is it just like Warren Buffett says, we're just going to have to inflate our way out of it at some point? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess first things first, I wouldn't even go so far to say this is new normal. I would just say this is this is pretty much how it tends to work, right? Um, I, I mean, because politicians, well, in democracies for sure, and there are other softer mechanisms that create this same sort of effect in non-democracies, but politicians' primary concern is the next election, right? So they're, so they're concerned two to four years in advance in most countries. And now when you look at this sort of fiscal policy you know, scenario, you have this sort of paradox that deficits are very, very good for the economy in the short run. But debt, but debt is bad for the economy in, in the long run, as long if it you know exceeds certain thresholds and such. So what happens here is that is that if you're trying to win an election in two years, or let's say, when was the tax cut passed, or when did it take effect? February, eight months. Then, then the best thing to do is cut taxes, increase spending, let the deficit rise. Stimulate the economy through that through that mechanism, and then what you're doing is you know kind of goosing the economy. Unemployment's going to fall. Things are going to look good. But what you're doing is just stacking up this debt that, in the long run, is going to generate costs. And so, if you're if you're in the political sphere and you're reacting to political incentives, it is optimal for you and you know the sort of individualistic perspective to just goose the economy with deficits to win the next election. However, there's always a next election. So what you get oftentimes is this continuous goosing of the economy, stimulating the economy with deficits. And then that leads to this just constant accumulation of debt. And that's, and that's, I mean, that's a large portion. That's a large reason for why most of the world that doesn't have massive oil resources has governments that have fairly large debt because because everyone is engaging in what we call these sort of political business cycles where as soon as the next election is coming up they try to goose the economy through either deficit spending or whether it's uh, or perhaps strengthening the exchange rate to make foreign goods cheaper or if you don't have an independent central bank lowering the interest rate to create some small inflation that simulates the economy uh, which is actually why we have independent central banks because when you don't everyone just does that and yeah, so, so it just creates a scenario where you have things that are very good for the economy in the short run can often be very bad for the economy in the long run. And political actors following their short run political incentives that are centered around the next election tend to go for the policy that makes things look, look good in the short run, but creates problems in the long run. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing right now. 
in, in, in the U.S. with the increases in the deficit spending at the peak of the business cycle. I mean, this is a it's a classic problem kind of situation where you know there's an accountability gap, and I think we yeah. you know I've heard people make this argument about like CEOs of publicly traded companies as well, where you know you need to do the thing that's going to get the next quarter's earnings in. Yeah. It may not be best for the business uh, long term. It's actually often one of the core arguments I hear in the tech startup world about, well, why can't this company do the thing that you're doing and, and just envelop you? It's like, well, because they have a fundamental problem of being focused on quarterly earnings. And, you know, the guy that like, you don't get points for investing in something that's going to manifest five years from now because you're gone. Right. So it doesn't affect right. your bonus. And so, sort of the same thing for, you know, a congressperson or a president where, you know, when something goes terribly, terribly wrong in the future, it's not your problem. And when it goes wrong for you because someone did something in the past, it is your problem. And you can try to blame the guy before you and the people in your party will go, yeah, it was the guy before you. And the people not in your party will go, no, it's probably your fault. But guess what? You couldn't have done anything about it anyway. You, you just kind of like got handed this this pile of poo and now you've got to do your best with it. So it's it it's a really interesting incentives problem for democracies as a whole where there is the folks who have a lot of tools and power to you know manage a lot of the economy at from a macro level. They've they don't have the incentives to do the thing that's best long term. I think I remember once saying that, you know, my own personal part of my own personal theory on why the interest rate wasn't going up for a long time is that it's really hard to look at the public and say, I'm going to be the one that starts to put some water on this fire, right? I'm going to be the one to start to cool the party down, flash the lights at the bar, tell everyone it's time to go home and sleep it off because there's work in the morning, right? Who wants to be the one to spoil the party? And so, you know, I'm assuming this is part of why you think it's, you know, this is the norm. I hate to ask you this question because you may go, I don't know. But, you know, is there any way that, you know, academic economists who, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of whom see this incentive gap, is there is there any like proposed structure for a government to be able to realign these incentives? Yeah. So with the uh, so with monetary policy, it was pretty much figured out with this by utilizing independent central banks or trading central banks or independent central banks. Because the, the whole reason the Fed is independent, the whole reason that the president can't just grab the head of the Fed and say, hey, do this to monetary policy, is specifically for this exact reason we're talking about with the compatibility of incentives. Because, because in places where the president gets to pick monetary policy, what's it in their best interest to do? Keep interest rates low, keep unemployment low, which leads to high inflation which leads to higher growth than what we would have had otherwise in the short term, but lower growth than we would have had otherwise in the long term, right? It, it comes back to this big divergence between what's beneficial for the economy or what looks benef beneficial for the economy in the short run versus what's actually beneficial in the long term. All right, who boy, everyone, please forgive the technical difficulty on my side. We know how to fix it. It's going to take about a week and a half and then we'll be back in action with Jake Meyer, who we're so excited to finish this conversation with just as it was getting interesting. So you get a bit of a cliffhanger this time. 
but we promise we will wrap things up next time Jake is around once I'm in a location with slightly better internet. So until next time, dear listeners, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. Stay tuned for part two. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.